sermon text for this morning is uh, John chapter 1, verse 14. This is a very important verse in the Bible because, as we'll see, it ties so much of the Old Testament and points out how Christ fulfilled uh, many of the types and shadows of the Old Testament. John chapter 1, verse 14, we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. As we begin thinking about this verse, we need to note that the Gospel of John doesn't have a birth narrative of Jesus. Uh, We know that Matthew and Luke have very detailed birth narratives, uh, each documenting about how uh, Mary and Joseph found out about the child Jesus and about the angels that were there present at his birth as Matthew and, and Luke record those very wonderful events on that night. And then they record the great things that surrounded uh, Jesus' birth and, uh, and the beginning of his ministry there, Uh, all those wonderful events that took place at his incarnation. The Gospel of John uh, doesn't include those details, but it does include the wonder and the miracle of the incarnation itself, a doctrine that is found here in this verse, this verse that begins by saying, the word became flesh. The word that uh, John refers to in his opening verse here is the eternal Son of God, we know. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. You might recall the opening verses we read from the study thus far, John 1, 1 through 13, that John so clearly said that Jesus was in the beginning with God meaning that he is equal in power and glory with the Father and the Holy Spirit, but he is at the same time distinct from them. And then this eternal word became flesh. As we see in verse 14, John is now speaking of the incarnation. This is something that we usually think about during Christmas time as we remember the story of Jesus' birth to the Virgin Mary. And we've heard it so many times, perhaps, that Uh, we run the danger of losing the wonder, the glory of it all. As we think about the incarnation, we need to remember, loved ones, that one of the dangers of our faith is not just that we stop uh, believing, but that we can run the risk of losing sight of the glory and the awe of doctrines like the incarnation when Christ veiled himself in our flesh. What a glorious doctrine it is to think that Christ humbled himself. He humbled himself not by laying aside his deity or by uh, subtracting any of his divine attributes, but he humbled himself instead by adding to himself a true human nature. He veiled himself in the incarnation. The one who was truly God became truly man, so that he was fully God and fully man. And he did this because 
it was essential for our salvation that Christ take on flesh. Because this was the only way for him to accomplish our salvation, loved ones. We need to remember that it was man, it was humanity that sinned against God, and so it would have to be a man who would bear the curse of sin. We read about that curse in Genesis chapter 3, followed by the wonderful promise in uh, verse 15, that God made after the fall into sin and after pronouncing the curse upon creation, God promised that one would be born, a man would be born who would crush the head of Satan, even as he himself would suffer in accomplishing this victory. And that promise that God made way back in Genesis chapter 3 seemed like it wasn't going to come to pass as century after century passed and sin seemed to be increasing on the earth and Satan seemed to be winning. But then, as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, then in the fullness of time, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Christ took on our flesh to accomplish what the first man, Adam, failed to accomplish. And we read about Jesus' life, about how he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and how he was born, born in an ordinary way. We know that he had a miraculous conception, but he had a very ordinary birth. He was born into humble circumstances to a poor family. And that humble birth revealed his uh, true humanity, loved ones, that he really is like us in every way, yet without sin. He is bone of our bones and, and flesh of our flesh. And that's actually the importance of this word here, flesh, that John uses in chapter 1, verse 14, our sermon text this morning. We need to understand that John here is not referring to our sinful nature. You know, sometimes we talk about the sins of the flesh and and things like that. Uh, John is not referring to our sinful nature, but he's simply referring to our human nature. He's simply pointing out the fact that the incarnation, when Jesus became man, he did not take upon himself a super flesh or a special flesh, but he took upon himself the same stuff that makes up our bodies, my body and, and your body. Same type of skin and, and muscle and, and bones. And in that body, during his life, he experienced temptation and he experienced sufferings of all kinds. You know, when we think about Jesus' humanity, him veiling himself in flesh, and him enduring and, and suffering, Uh, during his ministry, we so often fast forward to the last few hours of his life and think about what he endured on the cross. But we need to understand, loved ones, that his suffering took place all of his life. Our king became a servant in a sin-cursed world, and he 
his suffering began as soon as he was born. He, he suffered a life of poverty early on in his life. He, during his ministry, suffered uh, persecution. He suffered the assaults of Satan in his temptations. He, he suffered from anguish in his soul as we read about the sorrow and the grief that he all, often experienced as he was uh, thinking about the cross. He suffered from hunger and thirst. He suffered by having one of his disciples betray him. He suffered knowing that a Peter would deny him three times. But we know that his greatest suffering came when he endured the wrath of God on the cross for the sins of his people. We read about this in Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 37. The question is, what do you understand by the words he suffered? The answer the Catechism provides is that Jesus, all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of his people, that so by his passion as the only propitiatory sacrifice, he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtain for us the favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Heidelberg Catechism pointing out there that because of the fact that he veiled himself in our flesh and he endured the temptations that came his way and that he experienced suffering of all kinds, loved ones, as a result of all these things, he knows what we are going through in our daily lives. As a result of his sufferings, we read in Scripture that he is able to sympathize with us. And so if we uh, go to him in prayer with our pain, uh, with our struggles, with our temptations, we know that he will never cast us away. He will never reject us. Instead, we're exhorted to cast all our anxiety upon him because he cares for us, as we read in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. And the Lord Jesus himself instructed us to come to him, all who labor and are heavy laden, and he will give us rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He veiled himself in flesh. And then we read in John chapter 1, verse 14, as John continues to explain under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the wonder of the incarnation, that he, after veiling himself in flesh, dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. Now the word for dwelt here, and I'm sure that many of you know this, it's the verb form of the Greek word tabernacle. John writes that the word tabernacled among us. You know, we read about the tabernacle for our first reading from Exodus chapter 40. We read about how God instructed Israel to build the tabernacle, or as it was known also, the tent of meeting, as the place where he was to dwell with his people. God specifically told Moses in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, he said, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. Now we know, loved ones, that God is present 
everywhere. But the tabernacle served as a, a visual reminder for Israel that God was with his people. It was, a, it was a picture of God's presence with his people in the wilderness. In fact, we read in the book of Exodus and throughout the Old Testament that the tabernacle was at the center of Israel's worship, and it was even at the center of Israel's camp because all the tribes were surrounding it as they were moving through the wilderness. And so when God's glory descended and filled the tabernacle, Israel saw visually that God was dwelling with his people. We read about this revelation in Numbers chapter 9, uh, verses 15 through 17. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And that evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. See, the tabernacle was Israel's visible reminder of God's presence in their midst. It's what the Apostle John, in our sermon text this morning, he takes up this image of the Old Testament tabernacle, the Old Covenant tabernacle, and now he connects it to Christ. And he shows us that just as the, the glory cloud descended upon the tabernacle, so too Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, tabernacled among us. That God no longer dwelled in a tent in the wilderness, but now he was dwelling in flesh and in bones. And this is a, a significant point here, loved ones, that when we think about the fact that Jesus dwelt among us, that he was Emmanuel, it's significant to consider the fact that he didn't just come to earth for a moment. It's not like he showed up fully grown and showed up for just five minutes and then left. But John is emphasizing here the fact that he came and he stayed. He was born and he grew and he learned obedience and he fulfilled his ministry, a ministry that lasted for years as he lived the life that we should have lived and ultimately died the death that we should have died. See, he lived among us. He dwelled here because he had to accomplish all that was necessary for our salvation. Because he was the, the second Adam, we know, who by his obedient life and his suffering death fulfilled the covenant of works for you and for me. And so throughout his life, throughout his tabernacling here on earth, you read about Jesus. You read about how he was uh, perfectly obedient to all the requirements of the covenant of works. And sometimes we uh, refer to this as his active obedience. The book of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 explains it this way. It says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The writer of Hebrews explaining there that he had to dwell here in order to fulfill the law, 
And he did so throughout his life as he was tempted by sin, but he never succumbed to that temptation. As the writer of Hebrews says, he was without sin. See, had he been stained by sin, he could not have been the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He would have joined Adam and you and me as part of those who need redemption, who need a redeemer. Jesus was perfectly obedient to all that was required. But he was also, loved ones, perfectly obedient in in bearing the curses that came with our breaking God's covenant. Sometimes we refer to this as Jesus' passive obedience. The fact that he bore the curses of God in his body on the tree. That's what he did on the cross. He took God's wrath upon himself, the wrath that you and I deserve. He bore our guilt. He bore our shame. The writer of Hebrews explaining in chapter 2, verses 18, uh, 17 through 18, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so, loved ones, right now at this moment, at this very moment, there is seated in glory, there is seated one who is for you and who is for me. We have an advocate there with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is on our side. And not only is he on our side at this very moment, but he has promised that where he is, we will soon be also. And so in thinking about the fact that he came here to dwell with us, to fulfill all that was required, we might say that he came here to dwell with us in order that we might one day dwell with him in glory. See, just as God led Israel through the wilderness to the promised land, the Lord Jesus is right now with us by his spirit. He is guiding us. He is protecting us. He is caring for us. Ultimately, he is ensuring that we will soon be with him for and eternity. The Apostle Paul testifies here that while he was on earth, dwelling among us, the Apostle John, I'm sorry, testifies that many people saw his glory. He says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now that word uh, glory is the visible manifestation of, of God's presence. We think about the image that we read from Exodus chapter 40 about the cloud and the fire that covered the tabernacle. We know, loved ones, that God is a spirit. He, he doesn't have a body like you and like me. He's not made up of matter. But at certain times, he takes matter himself he uses matter to reveal his glory and there in the tabernacle he revealed his glory through a cloud and and through fire and John is pointing out the fact 
that he revealed his glory in a supreme way in the incarnation. We might think that a pillar of fire is surely greater than a simple human body. But John instead is pointing out, no, it was in the incarnation that the glory of God was fully revealed. This is why John clarifies that the glory of Jesus was the glory of God himself because Jesus was God. He is the only son from the Father. And John says that we saw that glory. They saw his glory through Jesus' many miracles. We'll see throughout the Gospel of John, uh, John specifically noting seven signs that Jesus performed during his ministry. These were miracles that Jesus did, miracles that revealed his power and glory as the Son of God. John says we were witnesses to those miracles. We saw his glory demonstrated in that way. They also saw Jesus' glory in his transfiguration. We read about that night in Mark chapter 9, that after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. John here pointing out that there was a brief moment where the veil of Jesus' humanity was lifted and his true essence was allowed to shine through. John, thinking about that night and recalling that wonderful moment, the glory that was always in the depths of his being, of Jesus being, rose to the surface for this brief moment in his earthly life. And Luke's description of that night, in fact, Luke uses a word in describing Jesus' brightness, Jesus' glory and the transfiguration. It's the same word that's used to describe a flash of lightning. Children, if you've ever been outside during a lightning storm, you know how the whole place can light up in a brief moment as the lightning flashes. There on that dark night, the glory and the light of Christ's divinity lift, uh, lit up that mountainside for a brief moment. John saw his glory and Jesus' many miracles in the transfiguration, but also in his death and in his resurrection. Remember, loved ones, that John was the only disciple who stayed near the cross as Jesus was dying. Ultimately, Jesus' glory was revealed in his servant heart. Think about his becoming incarnate, his dwelling among us, and him displaying his glory. That glory was most wondrously revealed in the way that he served us by dying on the cross for us. And the fact that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, theologian Leon Morris, in reflecting on Jesus' glory as the, the suffering servant, the one who died for the sins of his people, Leon Morris uh, writes, where people needed help, Jesus helped them. Where there were sick people, he healed them. Where there were ignorant folk, he taught them. Where there were hungry people, he fed them. 
all the time he was seeking the needy. He was seeking those that he wanted and needed to serve. Morris continues and says, he did not haunt the palaces of kings and governors. He was not found in the high places of the earth. All his life he was among God's little people, those who in one way or another felt their need. And wherever there was need, he was found doing lowly service. That is what Christ came to do. And that is glory. In a glorious way, the Lord Jesus willingly humbled himself. Richard Phillips writes, this means that we too can lead glorious lives. We do not possess Jesus' divine power to perform miracles, although we do have great power in prayers offered in his name. But through the Holy Spirit, as Christ lives in us, we have power to deny ourselves, serving sacrificially out of God-given love. We too can help. We can heal. We can teach. We can feed. We can take in the lost. We can bind up broken hearts. Through faith, we can be Christ-like, bearing his glory before the world. Lastly, we see that in all his glory, Jesus revealed God's grace and truth. These words, grace and truth, in verse 14 of John chapter 1, describe God's covenant mercies. These words are often translated steadfast love and, and faithfulness. And Jesus, we know in his ministry, revealed God's steadfast love and faithfulness by revealing and uh, by fulfilling all that was required for our, our salvation. We think about this word grace. This word grace that Jesus displayed throughout his ministry. What is grace? It's unmerited favor that God shows toward sinners. And Jesus primarily displayed this in the fact that he willingly came to die not for people that loved him, not for people that showed him obedience, but he came to die for sinners. We read in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 10, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. J.C. Ryle is a 19th century theologian. He writes, we have in this striking fact and the fact that Jesus, the truth of God, showed grace by dying for sinners. We have in this striking fact a vivid emblem of the manner in which God pardons and justifies the ungodly. He does it because Christ has suffered in their place, the just for the unjust. We deserve punishment, but a mighty substitute has suffered in our place. We deserve eternal death, but a glorious surety has died for us. See, loved ones, we, we're guilty. We're wicked and worthy of condemnation, but when we were without hope, Christ, the innocent one, dwelt among us and then died for us. He was raised for 
our justification. He was raised in glory, pointing out how we too will be raised to newness of life. And this life now raised spiritually and in the new heavens and the new earth raised bodily. And now God, for Christ's sake, can be just and yet the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Loved ones, let us praise God that we have such a glorious salvation that is set before us. Our prayer as God's people must always be not that we deserve to to be set free, but that Christ has died for us, loved ones. Christ has taken our sin upon himself. Let us take heed that having so great a salvation, we really make use of it for our own souls. May we never rest until we can say by faith, Christ is mine. I, I deserve eternal punishment, but Christ has died for me. And believing in him, I have the hope of heaven. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who though he was God, did not think of equality with God as something to cling to, but instead he willingly gave up his divine privileges and by his incarnation took on our flesh, humbling himself in order to raise us up to newness of life. We thank you, Lord, for the light of spiritual clarity that he brings through his word and spirit that in him we receive grace and also truth. And we pray, Lord, for a daily grace to live for your glory and honor as we seek to shine as lights in this dark world. Bless us now, we pray, as we partake of this spiritual feast before us. For it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. Let us now turn in our hymnals to hymn 308, Jesus paid it all as we sing and prepare our hearts to commune with Christ in this heavenly feast.
your friends, we read in Luke chapter 22 that on the night in which our Lord Jesus was betrayed, that he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. By these actions, the Lord Jesus instituted the sacrament of communion. And as we uh, approach this table this morning, I want us to consider the purpose of the sacrament so that we may eat and drink with discernment. We may eat and drink understanding what these elements represent uh, before us. And first, the sacraments confirm or they seal, we might say, God's promises to us. Uh, they are like a king's seal on a letter, or in our day it would be a signature on a contract that, that verifies that what is written in this document is true, that every word of that contract will be fulfilled. In the same way, the sacraments confirm what God has promised to us, loved ones. God has promised to give us Christ and through him to give us all the benefits that he imparts to those who trust in him by faith. The same thing happens when we hear the gospel preached. We receive Christ. The Lord confirms his promises to us by his spoken word. When we partake of communion, which is before us, we receive Christ, but we receive him in a different way. We receive him in a way that engages our other senses of sight, touch, taste, and, and smell. We not only hear the pardoning word, but we also taste and see that the Lord is good. Secondly, the uh, sacraments nourish and they strengthen our faith by pointing us to our future communion with Christ in glory. We know that in this world we live by faith and not by sight. But the bread and the wine that is before us this morning, these elements are a visible form of an invisible grace. These elements are God's visible words to us. And the very fact that they are visible, that we can see them, this fact reminds us that there will come a day when our faith will give way to sight, when we will be raised with Christ and we will see him face to face. And thirdly, the sacraments set us apart from the world. The Westminster Confession of Faith explains that the sacraments put a visible difference between those who belong to Christ and the rest of the world, between believers and unbelievers. That's why, loved ones, this is a family meal. It is for those who have received the grace of adoption. And so this bread and wine confirms to us this morning that we are God's children. This is his seal testifying to the fact that he has brought us into the, his family, that we belong to him. And so Christians, your Savior calls you to partake of these signs and seals of the covenant and to enjoy fellowship in his body and blood as we now together feed upon him by faith in our hearts. And for those of you who have 
have not come to a place where you trust in Christ for salvation, please do not take the bread and the wine. I invite you instead to consider the word that was preached today and to consider the promise that Jesus gives that if anyone thirsts, let him come to him and drink and he will give you his spirit and welcome you into God's fellowship. And then when you're ready, make your faith known publicly and you will be welcome to the Lord's table. And children, many of you have received the sign and seal of God's covenant promises in baptism. And I remind you every month that your parents, your elders, and I, your pastor, we are all praying that you will continue to grow in your faith and one day make a public profession of faith so that you too might join us in this meal. And so to all who believe, I invite you on Christ's behalf to this table. Come, not because you are worthy in and of yourself. Come, not because you are faithful and not because you feel righteous, but come because a loving Savior calls you here to nourish and to strengthen your faith. Come, believing sinners, for the table is ready. Let us together taste and see that the Lord is good. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we bow before you now and acknowledge your wisdom in creating us and your wisdom in the way that you went about redeeming us. Our thanks today and our praise to you today focuses upon what Christ endured on the cross when he took upon himself all the punishment that was due to us for our sin and our rebelliousness against you. Lord, we thank you that on the cross, Jesus offered up once and for all that perfect sacrifice for sins. Oh, how deep for us your love must be to send the spotless lamb to pour out his blood in death, the just for the unjust, the sinless for the sinful. Lord, now at your invitation, we come to your table to remember Christ's death and to commune with him by the Spirit. Grant that we may now receive by faith the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was crucified for us. It's in his name that we ask all this. Amen.